0: But all four made substantial progress in a relatively short period of time, implementing the six principles of soil health and the three rules in a very intentional manner. So it works no matter where we are.
1: Welcome to the 278th installment of Ear to the Ground, the Land Stewardship Project's podcast on family farming, regenerative agriculture, regional food systems, and local democracy. I'm Brian DeVore, editor of the Land Stewardship Letter. It's been said that the number one reason a regenerative practice like cover cropping or adaptive rotational grazing doesn't succeed is because a farmer fails to give it a try in the first place. Stepping off the monocropping treadmill or putting livestock out onto well-managed pastures can be intimidating, especially when all your neighbors are pursuing a much more conventional path. That's why working examples of regenerative farming methods being successfully implemented are so important. They serve as a guideline and inspiration when farmers and ranchers are looking to make significant changes on their own operations. Alan Williams has collected several such regenerative ag case studies over the years. What he's found is that the old argument that those practices won't work in my area are simply false. When certain basic rules are followed, regenerative management can work just about anywhere from the former prairies of the upper Midwest to the desert country of Mexico. Allen has seen these practices working practically and profitably firsthand. Besides being a sixth-generation family farmer and founding partner of Grassfed Insights, Understanding Ag, and the Soil Health Academy, Williams holds a doctorate in livestock genetics. He's consulted with more than 4,000 farmers and ranchers in the U.S., Canada, Mexico, South America, and other countries on operations ranging from a few acres to over 1 million acres in size. In 2022, LSP invited Dr. Williams to Minnesota to talk to farmers about ways of using soil health and regenerative agriculture to bring the land back to life practically and profitably. As part of these field days, we've launched a four-part podcast series featuring conversations with him. In episodes 276 and 277, Alan Alan talked about the principles of regenerative agriculture and the three rules of adaptive stewardship. In this episode, he gives four examples of farming operations that have successfully implemented adaptive stewardship. They cover a wide geographical area, from the plains of North Dakota and the humid bottomlands of Mississippi to California's highly productive Central Valley and the parched scrublands of Mexico's Chihuahuan Desert. Williams emphasizes that although each operation has put its own twist on regenerative management to fit local weather, soil, and market conditions, in every case, the basic principles of adaptive stewardship still apply.
0: What I'm going to do is I'm going to take us to different areas of North America today so that we can understand how the six principles and the three rules apply equally well, no matter where you are, no matter your growing conditions, your, your, your climate type, whatever the case may be. And and, and that's very important to realize and understand. I'm going to start in North Dakota, the Northern Great Plains. You know, it can be a very unforgiving place, both in the winter and the summer. Uh, In the winter, you can get, you know, just bitter cold. Uh, And then in in the dead of summer, you can get extreme heat, you know, and wind. So it can be a tough environment. And of course, rainfall can be very limited here. It, it's going to average you know, about 15 inches or so a year. So we're, we're talking about an area that can be semi-arid. So we've got a four neighboring farm comparison that I want to talk about. These are direct neighbors. Farm one is a certified organic farm that has a fairly diverse cropping Rotation. They grow wheat, barley, oats, corn, sunflower, peas, soybeans, dry edible beans, and alfalfa. So, a pretty good crop rotation. That, that's good. They're certified organic, so they're not using any synthetic fertilizers or chemical pesticides. However, they are not incorporating livestock into their operation, and they're making only minimal use of cover crops. They sometimes plant them and sometimes don't in between cash crops. And when they do plant a cover crop, it's usually just a monoculture. Farm number two is a five-year, or at the time we collected this data, it was a five-year no-till farm. They have low diversity in their crop rotation, basically flax and spring wheat is their diversity. They do use a lot of synthetic fertilizer, especially things like anhydrous ammonia. They also are not incorporating livestock and very minimal use of any cover crops. Farm three is a long-term no-till. They've been uh, you know, 10 plus years no-till sort of medium diversity in their crop rotation. They do use a lot of synthetics and a lot of chemicals. And again, they're making minimal use of cover crops when they do use them and no livestock are integrated into the cropping. Farm 4 is another long-term no-till. They've actually been no-till since the 1990s. They have high diversity in the cash crops that they're growing. But in between all the cash crops, they always plant a complex or highly diverse cover crop. They also fully integrate livestock into those cover crops to graze and make use of use of those cover crops, even to the point of multiple livestock species in those cover crops. They have not applied any fertility outside of what the living livestock have applied since 2007. So let's take a look at, at some test results for those four farms. So if we look at this Haney test results, nitrogen, phosphorus, and potassium for farms one, two, and three, the difference in their values is negligible. They're all running in their end values in terms of pounds per acre, they're running from seven pounds to 37 pounds. In P, they're running 156 to 217 pounds. And in K, they're running 95 to 199. So, but when we get to farm four, the only farm that's implementing all six of the soil health principles and the three rules of adaptive stewardship, we see a dramatic difference. Their N levels are at 281. Their P at 1,006. Their K at 1749. And then if we look at water extractable organic carbon, their organic carbon levels, farms one, two, and three are running in the low to mid 200s in terms of parts per million. And farm four is running 1095, you know, a dramatic difference. And then if we look at their percent organic matter, and their water infiltration rates. Farm one, two, and three are averaging organic matters between 1.5 and 1.7. And this is the Northern Great Plains. So think about the soil organic matter loss that has occurred on these farms through the decades. They're all the way down below 2%. Farm four started there. They were about one and a half percent as well, but they now have soil organic matters that are 7 to 11% in their soils. And if we look at water infiltration rates, farm one, two, and three are all running about a half inch an hour water infiltration rates, pretty, pretty similar to each other. But farm four is able to infiltrate 20 plus inches an hour. So dramatic difference. So, so that's an example of the Northern Great Plains and what can happen if you implement the six principles and the three rules intentionally. Now, what we're going to do is we're going to go all the way down to the hot and humid south. So, we're going to go down to Mississippi and we're going to take a look at what can happen on a farm here that is subjected to heat and humidity pretty much year round. So, a very, very different place than the northern Great Plains. So, we've got a farm in northern Mississippi that the starting point when regenerative practices and adaptive grazing were first implemented, soil organic matters on this farm are ranging between 1.3 and 1.6 percent. And oh, by the way, this farm is located in the Black Belt Prairie. So historically, soil organic matters would have been way above this. So soil organic matters were 1.3 to 1.6. Water infiltration rates were averaging less than a half inch an hour the major forage species as determined by the local land-grant university, Mississippi State University, were, were very, very low. So they, it was very low diversity and it was taking a minimum of six acres per animal unit to support you know, cow-calf operation, which is not good down here. That may be very good in other regions of the country. So, so what this farm did, that was their starting point. They immediately, their first winter, started implementing bale grazing, strategic bale grazing, and then in the active growing season, implementing adaptive grazing practices. What they did not do, there was no added fertility, no seeding of any kind, so nothing was planted, no mowing, and no herbicide use of any kind. So over the next four years, progress was tracked pretty steadily. And at the end of the first four years of regenerative practices and adaptive grazing, that farm went, the soil organic matter increased from the 1.3 to 1.6 to about 5.2% in just four years. So it went from 1.3 to 1.6, to an average of 5.2. Forage, the number of forage species increased dramatically. And this, again, remember nothing was planted. This all came up from the latent seed bank, from just a handful of forage species to more than 43 documented forage species, including native spe- prairie species. Water infiltration rates increased from less than a half inch an hour to more than 30 inches an hour. And the stocking rate went from requiring six acres per cow-calf unit to 1.5 acres to support a cow-calf unit. So dramatic progress in the hot, humid South, again, in a, in a pretty short period of time. So those are examples from, again, two very different places. For the third one, I'll take us all the way out to the Central Valley of California. So now we're going to the far west. And we're going to go to a walnut and almond orchard out in the Central Valley. Now, we were in California for two weeks in March and went through the vast majority of the Central Valley. And I can tell you, it did not look good. It was very sad. Lots and lots of bare soil, you know, farmers screaming for water. But when you see all the bare soil, you understand why they're screaming for water. You know, you're not going to have... A good water cycle when all that soil is bare like that for much of the year. So many of the almond and walnut orchards out there have little to no growth on the soil underneath the trees. It's mostly bare. They are, they are spraying pesticides, some form of pesticide, anywhere from six to 12 times a year on average in these orchards. They are highly reliant on synthetic fertility applications and highly reliant on irrigation to be productive. So that's the typical status. That's what you see. But we have clients that are operating their orchards now regeneratively. So we actually taught a Soil Health Academy in March when we were out there. And we took the group to these conventional orchards and and help them do things like water infiltration tests, the shovel tests, so on and so forth. And then we took them to a contrasting orchard in the Central Valley, a regenerative orchard. When we got to the regenerative orchard, instead of having bare ground, even in the midst of their D4 drought, this orchard had a sea of grass that was knee high to waist high all throughout the orchard, pretty incredible. They had attended an academy just four years ago and jump feet first into, you know, regenerative ag, started planting diverse cover crops and so forth. And it's made a dramatic difference. So they're year four into this. Not only do they have all this growth on the ground, protecting soil moisture and temperature and and facilitating water cycling and nutrient cycling, but now they've added sheep. So they have more than a thousand head of sheep that are grazing through their orchards, moved around using polywire. And so today, they have been able to dramatically cut their synthetic fertility, their pesticide applications, and their irrigation use. And they now have multiple revenue streams. So four years ago, they had one revenue stream, the walnuts and almonds that were being produced. Today, they have revenue from the lamb. And if you know what lamb is worth right now, that's a darn good revenue stream. They have revenue from the nuts that they are producing. And they also have a lot of beehives. So they have revenue from the honey. So now they have three revenue streams off the exact same acres where just four years ago, they only had one. So yet another example of fully implementing the principles and the rules. And then the final one, is yet another very different place. So we're going to go to Mexico, to the Chihuahuan Desert. They get less than eight inches of rain annually. Temperatures can easily soar to 105 degrees or more you know, in the summertime and stay that way for an extended period of time. And on most ranches in the Chihuahuan Desert, they're requiring anywhere from 150 to 300 acres per cow to support them. Now, that's a lot of acres per cow. And if anyone has been in the Chihuahuan Desert, if they've been around El Paso, Texas, or Las Cruces, New Mexico, or down into the state of Chihuahua or Cahuilla in Mexico, they know that it's pretty barren. Yeah, And mile after mile, you just see a lot of bare, barren soil. So let's go to the Los Damas Ranch in the state of Chihuahua in northern Mexico, and on the Las Damas. They started in 2012 implementing regenerative practices and adaptive grazing, and they have made phenomenal progress during that time period. The amount of forage that they've been able to grow, again, without planting any seeds or fertilizing or using any irrigation or any mechanical means, has been dramatic. So they, they went from being bear and a desert to a sea of grass. And even the phenotype, the morphology of their grasses has changed. And and it's a pretty dramatic change. So the, the grasses are actually far different looking than they were. The exact same plant species are far different looking than they were when they first started this. And so to give you the results of what has happened, since they started this in 2012, they have increased their net revenue by more than 350%. They have increased their forage biomass production by more than four and a half times. They've been able to increase their cow numbers in the desert by two and a half times, while also adding a substantial number of sheep to the ranch. And even more importantly, we have seen the return of many endangered species of birds and other wildlife. So we have documented uh, a lot of endangered species of birds, such as, such as the piping plover, sprague's pipit, lark bunting, so on and so forth. Even the aplomato falcon and all of these have now returned to this ranch because the ranch once again has the habitat that will support them. So those are four very dramatic examples in four very different regions of North America, but all four made substantial progress in a relatively short period of time, implementing the six principles of soil health and the three rules in a very intentional manner. And I'll give you this quote by Masanabu Fukuoka, who is the author of One Straw Revolution. It's really appropriate, especially for this Chihuahuan Desert example. He says, it was in an American desert that I suddenly realized that rain does not fall from the heavens, it comes from the ground. Desert formation is not due to the absence of rain, but the rain ceases to fall because the vegetation has disappeared. And that is exactly what has happened in the Chihuahua Desert. If you look at the historical ecological context of this landscape, they once were a sea of grass. And we have direct evidence of that, historical evidence of that. They were a sea of grass that, due to overgrazing and overuse, disintegrated into an abject desert. But once again, we're we're able to recreate that sea of grass and I even have a picture taken in the 1860s on one of these regenerative ranches in in Chihuahua, Mexico and that picture is of a group of Apache warriors. We know exactly where the picture was taken. It was on one of these regenerative ranches and we know the exact spot it was taken. So in the 1860s where this picture was taken, those Apache warriors are standing in a sea of grass, grass up to their knees and their thighs but then that grass disappeared and it became bare ground. Luckily today on that same ranch we now see that same scenario and we could take a picture there again and it once again is a sea of grass. So it works no matter where we are.
1: In the last episode of this series, Dr. Williams will describe some of the research that links increased nutrient density in foods with regenerative farming practices. As we're recording this series, Allen is scheduled to be in southeastern Minnesota for a pair of Land Stewardship Project Field Days August 17th and 18th, 2022. For details on those events and resources related to Allen's work, see the links on the podcast page for episode number 278 at landstewardshipproject.org. If you have comments or suggestions about this podcast, contact Brian DeVore at Bdevore at Project.org, or you can call 612-816-9342. By the way, it helps us greatly if you can give Ear to the Ground a rating on iTunes, Stitcher, or whatever podcast platform you utilize. Thanks to Laura Borgendale, a Western Minnesota musician, for Ear to the Ground's theme music. And a special thank you to all of Land Stewardship Project's members who make initiatives such as this podcast possible. If you're not a member, visit landstewardshipproject.org to learn how you can support LSB. Thanks for listening. <laughs>